Um, my name is Joe Euler. I'm one of the elders here. Um, and today it is uh, my privilege to get to, to share from God's Word. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. Uh, we're going to be starting in verse uh, 24. Um, this has uh, been a passage that has been uh, dear to me for, for some time now. Um, and it's not uh, what you would consider a typical passage that you would find a lot of like comfort or, or joy in. Um, and we'll get to that in a second. But um, I, I need to, uh, a lot of the beginning of this sermon, we're going to be building a foundation that's going to help us uh, dive deep in our understanding of this text and then uh, sort of catapult us uh, into uh, joy and, and into the, the, the hope of the New Testament that we have in Jesus. And for us to, to get there, uh, I want us to remind, remind us of, of some New Testament scriptures, right? The, the opening lines of Hebrews, we read the following. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Um, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The writer of Hebrews then goes on to use 99 different uh, quotations uh, or allusions to explain how the prophetic utterances of the Old Testament have been fulfilled in or foreshadow what we have in Jesus. Jesus is the culmination of the Old Testament scriptures. They speak of his sufferings, they proclaim his excellencies, they promise his deliverance, and they declare his grace. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12 connects Jesus and the Old Testament this way. Uh, Peter writes, and concerning this salvation, right, the salvation of Jesus, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. So as the Old Testament writers were writing the scriptures, they, they began to understand uh, that God was speaking something, that he was giving them a message, that he was declaring to them uh, grace that was to be the churches, that was to be his people's. And they inquired, in verse 11, uh, what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them uh, that they were serving not themselves, but you, meaning the, the church, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So Jesus and the writers of the New Testament claimed that the message of grace that was to be ours is all over the Old Testament. Its pages consistently point to Jesus. And this week and next, it's my hope to dive into 2 Kings 6, uh, verses 24 through 720, and show how this whole passage uh, is one such example of where the prophets proclaim to us the grace that was to be ours in Jesus, and reveals to us the good news that we have in him. And so uh, I, like, I think of this whole uh, section as like a movie or a, a play that's divided into two acts and has four scenes. Uh, the first uh, act is inside the city. So you have the king on the wall, and then it, it switches scenes to the, the prophet in his hall. And then uh, that's what we're going to look at this week. And then next week, uh, we'll look at outside the city. You have the lepers outside the gate and then uh, the city being saved. So again, we'll, we'll do Act 1 today. And a, a word of warning, uh, today's act is disgusting. 
and it's brutal and it's heartbreaking. And uh, our temptation will be to let the terror be something that we externalize, uh, something that we distance ourselves from. Instead, right, I would encourage you uh, to be willing to recognize anything that the Holy Spirit would reveal to you. Let the word teach, let it reprove, let it correct, let it train you in righteousness, let it pierce to the division of soul and spirit and discern the thoughts and intentions of your heart this morning. And if you are able, uh, would you please stand with me for the reading of, of God's word? We'll be in 2 Kings 6 through 2 Kings 7 2. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria, and, and they besieged it, until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? And the king asked her, What is your trouble? She answered, The woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, Give your son that we may eat him. But she had hidden her son. When the king heard the words the woman uh, of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, May God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow, about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. And the captain, on whose hand the king leaned, said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat and let's pray. Lord, give us strength to, to see your truth in your word today. Uh, this text is, uh, is hard. Um, it is dark. It is full of, of evil. Uh, but Lord, it is also full of hope. And so, Lord, let us, uh, let us see what you would have us see today. Uh, take us down uh, to the depths of sin and the, the brokenness of it and the, the disaster of sin. Uh, but, Lord, also nurture us with uh, your words of salvation and your words of hope and your promise of deliverance. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, the details of our passage, though they're, they're gruesome... They are uh, terrible. They are not random, right? Uh, the prophets record them because they play an important part in the covenantal drama unfolding in this passage. They are, they are integral to the story, and they serve to help proclaim to us the message of grace that is ours in Jesus. 
We need to remember uh, four things as, as we approach this first scene, right? The scene of, of the city, the, the king on the wall. Um, the, the first thing that we should remember is this, is that God set up a covenant with the people of Israel, right? God is their uh, suzerain Lord. Uh, he created a covenant with them after he delivered them from, from Egypt. Yahweh was to be their God and they were to be to him, his people. Deuteronomy 14.2 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The the, the second thing uh, we need to remember is that God set up stipulations in his covenant with his people. He's Lord of the covenant, and he also set up uh, commandments, right? They're epitomized in the Ted Commandments, where you have the first book of how to worship God and the second of how to treat man. But they're also, through the whole law, there's uh, tons of commandments, uh, the law and the prophets, of how people should live, how they should treat each other, and how they should worship God. God required his people to obey these commandments as part of their covenant with Yahweh. Uh, Deuteronomy 440 uh, says, Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. The third thing that we have to remember is that Israel has broken the covenant of their God. Uh, The people have forsaken the true worship of Yahweh, and they've also not treated each other as they ought. Uh, they've forsaken the true worship of God. We see that in 2 Kings 3, 1 through 3. Uh, so uh, Jehoram, he's the son of Ahab, and he's king over Israel probably uh, during this time, even though it's not uh, explicit that it's so. I, I believe it is. Um, he reigned 12 years. Uh, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he uh, put away the, the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Uh, nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not part, depart from it. So uh, they, they did not worship God as they out, right? They still went to um, uh, the two golden calves that uh, Jeroboam uh, set up. Uh, but not only did they not worship God, they also uh, didn't treat others as they ought. Even the king w- was wicked. Uh, we see that um, in, in one episode of the life of Ahab. Right? Ahab wants Naboth's vineyard. Uh, he goes to him and says, hey, give me your vineyard. Naboth is like, no, brah, bro. Um, this, is, this is like my inheritance. I just don't sell this willy-nilly. And so, um, <clears throat> uh, but then he gets sad. And then his, his wife uh, says, hey, you should just kill the dude. And then he goes like, okay, let's just kill the dude. And so then they kill him, right? They stone him to death. They, they get him up on Trump charges. And then um, uh, uh, Ahab takes possession of the field, right? So this is supposed to remind us of like David and Bathsheba and how David treated Uriah as well. Um, just wicked, evil, uh, not treating others as they ought to be treated. And, uh, Elijah, who is a prophet at the time, gets this word from the Lord in second Kings 21. Uh, the Lord tells uh, him to arise, go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs looked up the blood of Naboth, uh, shall dogs look your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself 
to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the, uh, the third thing, right, is that the people have broken the covenant with their God. They've rejected his commandments and violated his statutes. And the, the fourth thing then is that because Israel has broken the covenant of Yahweh, Israel then suffers under the curse of the law. The covenant of the, the stipulate the covenant that God made with His people had stipulations, right? They were supposed to obey them. Uh, the promise was that if they obeyed them, they would be blessed. You see that in Deuteronomy twenty-eight. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, this is verse one, being careful to do all His commandments uh, that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. But as we've uh, seen, as we've gone through Kings, as we see, as we read the Old Testament in ourselves, right? Israel did not obey. They, they rejected God. And so instead of blessings, they are suffering under the curses of the law. Deuteronomy 28.15 uh, continues uh, the curse section of the law. It says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all the curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. And it continues, right? Verse uh, 20, the Lord will send on you curses, confusion, frustration, and all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds, because you have forsaken me. The Lord will uh, cause you to be defeated before your enemies. And you shall grope at noonday as a blind grope in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways. And you shall only be oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you. And you will become a horror and a proverb and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. The Lord will bring a nation against you, and they shall besiege you with all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they will besiege you and all your towns throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. And so here in Deuteronomy 28, verses 52 through 53, we have a chilling forewarning to the people of Israel that has come true. It has come true in our text today. And you cannot understand how this passage speaks to us of the grace that is to be ours in Christ, how it shows us the grace of God in Jesus Christ until you see the curse of the law in this text, until you see the darkness that has fallen upon Samaria. And so our story opens, we are understand the siege and the famine and the murder of a child as the consequences of the many, many sins of the people of Israel. They have fallen under the curse of the law. And keep, keep your mind, in mind too Romans 1, 28 through 32. 
It says this, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Sin leads to more sin. And more sin leads to even more sin. And even more sin leads to even more sin. The curse of the law is simply a giving over of a person to pursue the desires of their own soul. And 2 Kings 6, 24-25 is a picture of what that giving over looks like. And that's where we'll start. In, in verse 24, afterward, then Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria, and they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. The city is desperate under the curse of the law. There is widespread hunger and the famine is so severe that the people have developed a market for the selling of the most grotesque food you could possibly imagine. People are eating the heads of donkeys and the dung of pigeons. It, just to put this into maybe, maybe some modern day context, I, I just calculated like the weight in a shekel of silver to like modern day value, right? And so people would go and they'd buy the head of a donkey for $665. And they would buy a cup, one cup of pigeon poop for $40. And if you ate three meals of this pigeon poop a day and one donkey's head, you'd be spending $6,400 a month on nothing right? On worthless food that does not satisfy you. And if you lived that way for a whole year, you would have eaten 110 cups of pigeon poop and 52 donkey heads and spent $77,000 to consume it. You would have, like for most of us, that's all the money we ever make in a year. That's everything. Sometimes that's more than what we have. And I have not gone here for no reason because the Bible often uses the theme of eating and drinking to communicate messages about blessing and judgment. For example, Isaiah 55.1, we hear the promises of the new covenant described in terms of free food and drink. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. The theme continues in verse 2 and 3 as Isaiah challenges his hearers and us. He says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me. And eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. 
And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. God offers free food and drink. Here, it's equated to everlasting covenant of love. It's, it's something that our hearts yearn for. While the alternative, that what, what God is contra- contrasting that with, right, is it's food that doesn't satisfy. Right? It's, it's the food of a futile life of sin and death that only ends in sin and death. There is no satisfaction in that. And in this way, the people of Samaria become a vivid picture for our minds of what it means to spend money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy. They are buying and selling dung. They gather up the coins that they've earned from their labors, right? They run to the market. They feel the weight of the silver jingle in their purses. And they walk up to the dung vendor and they give them their money to buy poop. And then they take it home and then they feed it to their family. They consume it themselves. This, brothers and sisters, is a picture of what living in sin looks like. The whole world is hungry for food and drink. That God has to offer, but the fall has left us all spending our lives pursuing this food that is worthless. Lest we forget, right? And just think this is other people's problems, right? Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Genesis 6.5 says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. Isaiah 53.6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The world is full of sin. And just like the city of Samaria was full of dung-eating inhabitants. Now, there are three important ways I want us to understand this picture, this widespread spiritual hunger of the world that we live in. The first is this, right? We should use this picture as an arrow in our arsenal against the fight against sin that dwells within us, right? This should be something that that helps shake us from our stupor and from our slumber. It is like Proverbs 26, 11, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who returns to his folly. Both are disgusting pictures of what it means to return to sin over and over again. And as we exhibit covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, slander, insolence, haughtiness, boastfulness, disobedience to parents, foolishness, faithlessness, heartlessness, and ruthlessness, to to borrow from Paul in Romans 1, we are eating the worthless excrement of birds and and the heads of donkeys and the vomit of dogs. Let this be a tool that you can use to take every fat captive to obey Christ. Um, Dave, David, uh, one of our other elders here, he, he, uh, he, he shared like a, another word picture of sort of what this is like. So imagine that you're like baking brownies. Somebody bakes brownies and like you walk in their house and you're like, oh, that smells so good. They like, yeah, like I, I use this really great brownie mix and like I added some extra chocolate. And then I just, I just put in a little dog poop. Would you want to eat those brownies? Like, no, right? Like, no. But sin is, is similar, right? Sin's very, very similar in that it, it can smell so good. It can seem so alluring and so appealing. But if there's a little bit of dog poop in it, right? 
you're, ne- you're never going to eat it. You're never going to eat it. And yet we, we constantly flirt with sin, right? We constantly allow just a little bit of it in our lives. We constantly just let it, uh, let it just sit there un- untended. Um, when what we should do, right, is totally radically reorient the way that we think about it. The next time you feel tempted to sin, right, be it with your heart or your soul or your mind or your strength, I want you to see this picture in your mind, right? We're, we're in the city of Samaria, and, and sin is us walking to the dung vendor. Sin is us taking it home to our family. Sin is taking our fingers into the bowl and grabbing it. It's, it's taking it to our lips and eating it. And I hope this image cuts to your heart, right? I, I hope it, it shakes you out of your stupor towards sin. I, I hope it divides between your soul and spirit. And I hope it is a tool that you can use to rattle your cage and change the way that you think. I hope it makes your strength, your mind, your soul, and your heart cry out and say, I don't want to do that. I don't want to live that way. I don't want just a little poop in my brownies. I want, I want the real deal. I want Christ. I want to run to the table that Psalm 23, 5 says, that the king and shepherd of my soul has prepared for me in the sight of my enemies. I don't want to eat the quiet meal of poop in my home in Samaria. I want to run to my king where he has prepared for me the body and the blood of Jesus to satisfy me, to save me, to nourish my soul. And then we cry out, save me, God. And then we, we, we step out in, in faith and obedience and forsake that sin. Secondly, the knowledge of what sin is should radically change the way we view the world around us. Right? It should change the way we view the world. Um, there's a saying uh, from uh, the Lord of the Rings books that talking about uh, Strider. It says, all that glitters is not gold. Right? All that glitters is not gold. Um, there are ambitions, desires, longings, and passions that the world would have us spend our whole lives pursuing. They want us to, to chase after. They want to fill up our time with this, that, or the other thing. There's always more to do, right? More to accomplish, more to watch, more to see, more to say, more to write, more to earn, more to feel. Now, most of these things aren't bad in of themselves, but when our enjoyment of this life becomes our particular self-directed focus, right, we have much to worry about. We can become uh, people who, who seek to carve out our own kingdom of activity that earns us an audience with Jesus. Uh, we, we realize, or we fail to realize that sitting at the feet of Jesus is where our whole identity comes from where our whole source of, of uh, fulfillment is derived. And, and, but we think being busy uh, is what gives us a right to have an audience with Jesus, like what we can do, what we can accomplish, what we can earn. And so I, I want us to ask ourselves these, these things. Uh, where have I bought into the lives of the world and brought worthless food to our tables? What, uh, what media am I consuming? What, uh, what goals do I have in my life? What, um, how I orient my thinking? What I value as a person? What uh, unfruitful activity can be pruned from our lives today? Where do uh, I spend my time and my energy trying to earn my value from others? 
or from my accomplishments rather than from what Jesus has already done on my behalf? In what areas of my life do I need to say to the Lord, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and forsake my own worldly passions? The third uh, thing that I want us to see uh, from this picture uh, is that seeing this, seeing sin truly for what it really is, this, letting this picture drive down into our hearts should stir in us empathy and compassion for the world. Empathy and compassion. The world is feeding their souls with nothing. They are full of hunger and they are full of thirst, but nothing is going to satisfy them. No pursuit of their soul will ever get them there. And what a wretched and miserable state that is. And when Jesus looked out over the world and saw that they were harassed and helpless and like sheep without a shepherd, as he did in Matthew 9.36, or, or when he sees people hungry in the wilderness in, in Matthew 15.32, or, or when he looks over the vast multitude as he does in Matthew 14.14, 14, without fail, Jesus has compassion on them. He doesn't come at them with railing judgments or snide remarks, but he teaches them his ways. He feeds their bellies and he heals their sicknesses. Should not we as followers of Christ follow him in this as well? Who in your circle of influence is waiting for the compassion of Christ to shine on them? Who is giving away the wealth of their lives For the food that will never satisfy them. Who is spending all they have for the worthless food of sin? Let's take a moment right now uh, and pray for them. So close your eyes and and bow your heads and let's pray. And, And Lord, reveal to us people. Lord, any compassion that we feel uh, pales in comparison to what you feel for them. Lord, seek them out through us. Seek them out. Use us as a tool in your arsenal to save. Uh, Let let fear melt away from us. Lord, I I pray against fear over us. I pray against um, any shame. I pray against uh, any uh, timidity. Lord, uh, use us to speak your words of hope and love to the world around us. Thank you for bringing people to our minds. Keep them there, Lord. Let us, let us pray to you on their behalf day in and day out because we have compassion on them and we care for them and we love them. Grant us, uh, us that, Lord. Grant us compassion and love uh, the way that you love and have compassion. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, um, if the consumption of pigeon poop disgusts you, our picture of sin gets worse. So much worse. But as it gets worse, like remember that all this is important to understand how this shows us the grace that was to be ours in Jesus. It gets darker, but light is coming, I promise. Now, as the 
king in verse 26, right? We're still in our first scene of the king on the wall. Uh, As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? For the, from the threshing floor, from the winepress. So the king is, is uh, acutely aware that he has no power to help anyone. He is totally powerless. And he, uh, the king asked her, What is your trouble? She answered, This woman said to me, Give me your son, that we may eat him today. And we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, Give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, May God do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Uh, Just like, uh, you know, before how we saw echoes in uh, the Baath in his vineyard with uh, David and uh, Uriah and Bathsheba. So too here, we, we should see some echoes. First uh, Kings three sixteen through 38, where Solomon is king, right? Two women come to Solomon. The life of a child is in the balance. And Solomon wisely adjudicates the case between the two women. And he saves the child, right? He saves him. Um, but instead here, God's appointed judge... Uh, instead of God's appointed judge delivering a just judgment, we have several tragic ironies stacked upon each other that should leave us bewildered and brokenhearted. The first is the woman's bargain. There is something upside down about the parent of a child, right, who created another human life in their own image, who was the source of life from which the child sprung, who nourished and fed the child. There's something upside down when the parent snuffs out the life of that child. And even more so when they use the life of the child to sustain themselves. The givers of life strike a bargain to murder and consume the very lives entrusted to their care. Driven mad by the hunger of their sins, their evil continues to escalate until even those around them are destroyed. The second tragic irony is the woman's treachery, right? A bargain was struck. A child is murdered, but it was done so with treachery in mind. One of the women has no intention of sacrificing her child to the God of her belly. Instead, she was only willing to sacrifice another's. And through lies and treachery, she benefits from the catastrophic loss of the other. The third tragic irony is the woman seeking justice. The woman has just murdered her own offspring. And instead of feeling ashamed of what she has done, she seeks out the king to force the other woman to comply with the terms of their devil's bargain. What is right has become so twisted and malformed in the mind of this woman driven mad by her hunger that she feels so bold as to take her claim to the highest ranking official in the land, the king himself, and demand the death of this woman's child. The fourth tragic irony is the anger of the king against the man of God. 
the king is rightly angered by the situation, right? He tears his clothes in rage. And the king is rightly mournful over the situation of the city. He's, he's covered in sackcloth under his clothes. But his mourning and anger seem completely misdirected. Instead of anger over the sin of his people and mourning over his own idolatry, he focuses his anger at the man of God and seeks to destroy him. Right, he says, may God do so to uh, me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. The king of the land is at war with the prophet of God. And as we read these bitter and tragic ironies, we might be tempted to fail to see how they might apply to our own hearts. We might be disgusted and angry like the king on the wall, but our disgust and anger might be misdirected. We might fail to examine our own hearts and ask ourselves by the power of the Spirit, how am I like that woman? And so we should ask ourselves these questions. Where am I making a devil's bargain? Where have I made a pact with myself or with someone else that I know violates God's law? Where do I seek my own satisfaction at the expense of those God has given me to protect and nourish and grow? Where does treachery lie within my own heart? How do I use others to gain my own desires? Where do I count others as expendable and my commitments to them as contingent on what I have to gain? Where am I offended by the actions of others but not offended by my own sins? Where am I blinded by my own desires that I fail to see that the sin has wrapped its dark tentacles around my own heart and it's pumping poison into my whole body until I turn septic and die? Where am I angry with God, rejecting Him as Lord and the denying the truth of His word? We have looked at much darkness in this passage and maybe in our own hearts. We've been confronted with sin and the curse of the law. And it is so ugly. And there is deep, deep darkness here. But I have promised that this passage points us to Jesus. But how so? How is this an example of how the Old Testament speaks to the grace that was to be ours in Jesus? Where is the gospel in all this? Where is the grace? We have to go to our next scene. Our, our scene two is in the hall of the prophet. And our scene changes from the king on the wall to the prophet in his hall. Verse 32. Elisha was sitting in his house and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence. But before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him. And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said this, or said, this trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? 
If we hadn't already read what happens next, what do you think you'd say to the messenger when he arrives? What do you think the message on your lips would be? You are the prophet of God Most High among a people who have clearly rejected God and are sitting under the curse of God. You have endured hunger with everyone else. You're you're in the besieged city just like them and you are paying because of their wickedness. You have acted righteously. You have preached a message of repentance and none have repented. You have performed signs, fed the hungry, raised the dead, and delivered the evil kingdom from their enemies. Yet the people still rebel against God Most High and reject your message. You are familiar with the scriptures and you notice the signs of the curse everywhere. You know the king is evil, the people are evil, and they have been given over to the desires of their hearts to die in their sins. And now the Lord reveals to you because you're his prophet that a messenger is coming to seek your death, right? The king wants to chop off your head. What would you say in this situation? How boiling would your response be? What's your anger level at? What word would you have for the king and for the people of the land? Now, the, the, the juxtaposition between what I'd want to say and what Elisha says is where we get into the grace that was to be ours in Jesus. Because what Elisha does is, is breathtaking. It's just a single, like a little turn. It's hard, it's hard to, to see. You may miss it. The prophet announces salvation to the city in the midst of all the evil, in the midst of all the darkness, of all the sin, Elisha announces a word of salvation, of deliverance, of freedom. Verse 7, or chapter 7, verse 1. But Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. This is where like, I'd be like, you stink, get out of here. God's going to strike you down. But this is what Elisha says. Tomorrow, about this time, a sia of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two sias of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. I, ne- I never thought uh, like a, you know, a receipt would be an announcement of good news. Right? But that's what we have here. He's telling you what the price of food is going to be. And if, if you were paying attention, this is way cheaper and way more than what they were paying for a donkey's head and for poop. Right? It's, it's way better food. It's way cheaper. It's, it's unbelievable. It's so unbelievable that the captain, in verse 2, uh, on whose hand the king leaned, so he's his right-hand man, said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, how could this thing be? And Elisha responds, uh, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. The prophet has just declared to the people of Samaria that the curse will be reversed. The city that seeks to murder the prophet and devours its own children will be saved. This is it, guys. This is concerning this salvation. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person for time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ in the subsequent glories. My question, though, is why? Why would God save a city like this? 
Why did God extend mercy and grace to this sinful and corrupt city that murdered its own children? The question haunts me and excites me because as I examine my own life, I see that I'm like Samaria, that I'm under a curse too. When our primeval parents pulled that fruit from the tree and broke God's law in the garden by eating that which they should not have eaten, God's curse fell on all mankind. We see that in Romans 8:22 and Genesis 3:14 through 19. And as I have lived my life, I have constantly been storing up for myself wrath on a daily basis by sinning constantly and breaking God's law. Galatians 3.10 and Deuteronomy 27.26 both say, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Romans 2.5 uh, says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So as a man, I am doubly cursed. Cursed by the fall? Cursed by my daily sins. And so do you see now why I have such an interest in the answer to this question? I am just like Samaria. I am under God's curse. And I deserve uh, judgment. I deserve destruction. I deserve the wages of my sin. And so I'll put it a different way. Why would God extend mercy and grace to me? Or to any of us? Why, why just Samaria? We are all like Samaria. And, and this question terrifies me because I see how little I deserve it. Right? I, I have uh, children. And one of the things that I've come to learn is that children love donuts. If anybody has ever seen a kid eat a donut, um, they love them. Especially, like, uh, depending on your kid, they may not like the cream filled or they may, or, you know. But um, some of them like the chocolate ones and... Usually what they do is they just eat in the middle the whole time, right? And so the donut just gets farther and farther on their cheeks as they're eating. And then the frosting just like gets all over their face, right? And then the frosting also falls all over their shirt. And then it like falls on their pants. It's on the floor later. It's on the table. It's a total mess to clean up, but it's like cute, right? Because they're like eating and it's fun. Um, uh, I think it's sweet. Um, But I think uh, to sort of like turn that... uh, analogy of of cuteness and sweetness on its head, right? I am just like that child, right? But I am eating sin. I'm eating the food of sin. And I've I've seen, I I look at my life and I see how I've smeared it all over my face, right? I see how I've got it all over my clothes and I see how it's all over my pants. I see how it, how it, uh, it dirties me. I see how I've gotten it all over the table. I see how when I interact with other people, the sin rubs off from me onto others. And it breaks my heart, right? It breaks my heart to know how wicked I am. How little I can enter into God's presence because of my sin. How the yearning of my soul uh, is is, um, kept from me. uh, Because I cannot enter his presence. Because there is sin in me. I can't be with God as I want to be. As I was designed to be. As I was meant to. To be my sin separates me from him. And, and as much as I want him, I can't have him. 
And so I'm terrified by becoming into his presence, right? Uh, uh, No sin can dwell with God. And to be sinful in his presence would be my utter destruction. And yet this, this yearning, right? This yearning to be with him, to be satisfied, to be safe, to be loved, to be free. This yearning is the same reason that this passage gets me so excited, right? I see myself in Samaria, but then I hope for the word that Elisha spoke of, of freedom, of deliverance, of release. Maybe God could have such grace for me too. Maybe since he was merciful and gracious to the people of Samaria, he will be gracious and merciful to me, the sinner. Can my hope and expectation for a merciful, compassionate God be satisfied by what I find in Jesus? The answer is yes, right? He is just like Elisha. And that both follow after an Elijah, right? Elisha is Elijah's disciple. We see that in 1 Kings and the early chapters of 2 Kings. Uh, John the Baptist, uh, the New Testament says, is the Elijah who must come before to prepare the way of the Lord, right? And so Jesus then, who comes after John the Baptist, is like Elisha. Uh, Matthew seventeen, ten through 13. There are also striking similarities between the signs of Elisha and the signs of Jesus. Uh, We know that the early church understood a connection between the ministry of Elisha and Jesus. Uh, But is there anything explicit about how Jesus came to extend grace and mercy to sinners? To those cursed for their violation of God's law. There is, right? There is, right? That's the good news of uh, the Bible. In fact, there are so many promises Uh, of it in the Old Testament and in the New, that I can only cover two. That's all we got time for. We don't even have time for those, but we're going to do it. Uh, The first is a story that's found in all three synoptic Gospels. We see it in Matthew 9, Mark 2, and Luke 5. Jesus is eating with a bunch of tax collectors. These are are sinners. They're people who have... uh, they, They... lay heavy burdens on, on poor people, they steal their money, uh, and they en- enrich themselves. So in general, evil people, sinners. Um, and Jesus is eating with them. And, and some Pharisees notice that, and in their mind, they're like, why is a teacher eating with sinners? Doesn't he know that like interacting with sinners makes you uh, defiled, that you get, um, that it's bad, you shouldn't do it. Um, now, the words of Jesus, how are your response to these Pharisees? Uh, it should be like nourishment to our souls, right? It should be hope for us who see ourselves as cursed and as sinners because we recognize what we have done. Jesus says to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick go and learn What this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came for people just like me. He came for people like me. I am sick with feasting on the emptiness of sin. My heart is in need of a healer, of a great physician, of one who can stop the bleeding of my heart and open my eyes to the truth and loosen my ears to his voice and unlock my tongue to speak his name. 
I need his power to liberate me from the power of the devil and of death and of sin. And that is what he came to do. He came to call sinners. What glorious and marvelous news. But what about the penalty, right? He came to call me, but what about my penalty? What about the, the, what I deserve, right? Because the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. And a curse is on me for not keeping the law of God. That's Galatians 3.10, Deuteronomy 17, and James 2.10. Well, Jesus saved me from these as well. Yes, he will. What? This is exactly what the Bible says in Galatians 3.13. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus' death on a cross, a tree, has removed the curse of God from you. Isn't that marvelous news? For sinners like us. Christ became cursed for us. So that he might absorb the wrath of God. And do this. Right? Galatians 3.14 continues the thought. It says. So that in Christ Jesus. The blessings of Abraham. Might come to the Gentiles. Right? Where a curse was. God brings a blessing. To overpower it. To overcome it. To reverse the curse. So he comes with the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, of which I'm a member, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Not only did Jesus remove the curse for us, he didn't just remove the curse, he also gave us the blessing of Abraham. When we should have received the curse of eternal, unending, unmitigated by grace, feasting on the wages of sin, which is death, right? A, a death, uh, a dying with never dying, right? That's kind of what the second death is. It's like we're constantly dying. We in Christ can receive the blessing of Abraham. And what is that blessing? I, I, I love going to Revelation 27 to, to get a succinct picture of what the blessing of Abraham is. John, as he's writing, said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Jesus has made a way for every sinner on this earth, to know and dwell with God. Jesus will come and be with us. On that long-awaited day, you and I and all people who place their hope in Christ and in what He has done will breathe in the atmosphere of heaven and inhale the manifest presence of God. Before our eyes, we will see sights and wonders that will force us to cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
We will take great delight in singing the song of Moses of the Lamb, crying out, Great and marvelous are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For you, your righteous acts have been revealed. The promise of Abraham is knowing God in the place he meant to be known, in the way he was meant to be known. All our sins and all the judgment that we deserve has been placed on Christ on the cross. Colossians 2.13 and 14 puts it this way. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Right? The, the curse had killed us, but God reversed it. Right? He changed it in an instant of good news, proclaimed to our hearts. We were dead and we were made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. He canceled, right, the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Christ has done it. Just like Elisha promised grace and mercy to the inhabitants of Samaria and God delivered it, so too, right, Jesus has promised grace and mercy to all sinners and has delivered on it. Jesus has done it. And now is the time when grace will be found. Now is the time when those lost to death can be found by the love of God and saved from the curse of the law. Now is the time when the valley of this world is littered with dry bones and the Spirit of God goes through the, uh, through the proclamation of Christ and it puts on flesh on the bones and creates for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And all you need to do to receive the good news, all you need to do to participate in this work of God and become part of his family and, and get to be in that revelation uh, moment, right? Where we see the new heavens and the new earth come. And God said to us, I will be your God and, and you will be my people. All we have to do to leave our, our lives of sin and, and be forever with God is simply turn from our evil ways and trust that all that Jesus has done, he has done for you. Today, now, would you call on the name of the Lord to be saved? Would you come to the only place where true food and true drink can be found for your soul? Will you call upon the name of Jesus to be saved? Let's pray.